This is the Mailbox Money Podcast, and I am Bronson Hill. As a busy professional, I wrestled with how to grow my income without taking up more of my precious time. I learned that managing real estate, actively trading stocks, or being unable to scale up investments is not passive investing. This is the place where you'll discover new asset classes, develop investing skills, and learn from experts how to become financially free with less work than you thought possible. And now, get ready for truly passive income. All right, welcome, welcome. My name is Bronson Hill, and this is uh, Rising Interest Rates and Real Estate and how to invest and also prepare for what is coming uh, in real estate. So I'm really excited for this topic. It really is a hot topic that many people are concerned about or talking about. There's different views when it comes to institutional investors, it comes to retail investors. And so if you're joining us live, just stick in the chat where you're coming in from. I know we'll get a few more joining later. And then of course, if you're watching this on a replay, uh, glad that you decided to join us as well. But to do a quick intro, we're gonna jump right into it. And then toward the end, we're gonna have some questions. So if you do have questions, you are welcome to ask them now. If you'd like to, it's probably more preferable to wait until we're ready for the question part, but there is a portion of the chat that is labeled for questions. So just put your questions in there, especially as we get closer to the end. So uh, as I mentioned, my name is Bronson Hill. I'm the CEO of Bronson Equity. We have 200 million in multifamily assets. I've got a couple other syndicators and a lender here with me. So anybody who's joining, this is, uh, I've had conversations I think with each of you and we had a, actually a great conversation before we started recording. So we thought we'd just kind of continue that rather than show up and say, we're all tired. We've already talked about all the solutions. We've got it all figured out. So you are in for a treat. So let's let's just jump right into it. So this is really the elephant in the room. Everybody wants to know, interest rates are rising. Uh, we're seeing it in single family. We're seeing it in some valuations there. How is it affecting multifamily? How is it affecting commercial? Where do we see all of this going? And so let's start, maybe we can start with um, Stephen. Maybe you can give us just a little bit of your thoughts as far as what you're seeing right now in the market. How do you see this playing out over the next six to 12 months? So it's hard to look out farther than say the next 60 or 90 days to really be able to have a good understanding about what's happening right now is we're seeing a little bit of a softening happen uh, on the, the seller side. A lot of sellers point aren't there, uh, but you know, as Andrew's probably going to talk a little bit, the debt side is starting to get a little bit less competitive than it used to be. It's getting a little bit more expensive. Um, so what that's leading us to is a position where we know uh, that, we are going to be in a really strong position both to place equity in a much more secure position as well as be able to bail out different operators who need our capital and cash. And so we'll be positioning ourselves to both go into a much more secure position as well as be able to find unique opportunities where we can come in and really bring our strength to the table. So I think this is the time where some of the best operators really have a chance to thrive and it's going to really start to push out some of those people who maybe don't quite have the experience or the liquidity to be able to stand strong in a changing market. So that's kind of how we're looking at things. We're walking about this on, what is it, July 6th? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that's a really great point. You know, things are changing very quickly and it is important not only to pay attention, but to continue to consume information. And we're seeing that as well. We've gone very much from, you know, being 20 to 30 offers at, at the table to kind of having some strength as a buyer and coming in. We hate to use the word retrade, but to come in and, and negotiate a lower 
sale price. And that just happened. We got a, a deal for about a million and a half lower, uh, you know, kind of toward the end, just saying, hey, these numbers don't really make sense anymore and that kind of thing. So it was very helpful. Um, Hunter, I know you you're, you guys dabble in, in different asset classes and, and you know, I know some some have been affected differently, kind of just what's, what's happened the last few months. Can you talk about, you know, what you're seeing in the markets and what sort of opportunities or what, where do you see things going in the next six to 12 months? Yeah. So first of all, thanks for the opportunity. I know you've had some incredible speakers here and it's really an honor to be sharing the stage, not just with them previously, but both Stephen um, and our boy, Andrew Wessling on the debt side, which I'm very much interested in just interviewing Andrew Wessling for the rest of this interview. Not only is the name of the game for a reason, there's a ton of participants in the market. It's very competitive because of that. That's the definition of what it means to have a lot of participants. But at the same time, um, I think there's a lot of opportunities outside of multifamily. Um, I am the principal at ASIM Capital. And so what we do is we're kind of sponsor agnostic, asset class agnostic. We want, um, I wouldn't say sponsor agnostic, definitely asset class agnostic. We want best in class operators in each respective niche so we can intelligently participate. I'm not an operator. I raise capital for operators and because I don't want to be a jack of all trades. I want to have some diversification, but I want to be able to rely on people that all they do is focus on one particular niche, which is how you get a market advantage from my particular view. So um, like I said, yeah, let me know in there if you're interested in things other than uh, multifamily. So basically, um, because we are one step removed from the assets, most of my information comes from guys like Andrew, comes from other operators that I respect. But I can tell you this. I have been through this before, um, meeting for for a long time. So uh, it does feel like this time is different, but I can tell you every time you look at that chart in 2008 and stare at those prices and go, man, how fun would it have been to get in there in 2008? I can tell you it wasn't that fun. What it was, was all your friends were losing their jobs. People were going through divorces. Kids were having their college uh, funding being pulled. Like that's the reality of significant corrections in real estate. And this is just one of many. Same thing is true in 2020 where everyone's like, can't we just get a 10% correction? And the government goes, you can't go outside. You can't go to retail. You can't go to gyms. And everyone goes, not like this. This isn't what I meant. Well, it's just another example of a not like this type of scenario. So I'm excited to learn. Um, we have navigated choppy waters before. Um, one thing, because I am asset class agnostic, there is always a flight towards quality. I've interviewed over 400 people on my show. And there's a million ways to make money. But the way to lose money in this business is to run out of friends to run out of people that you can rely on. So have a 20 unit mobile home park, 45 minute out of Greensboro, maybe he's going to put you third or fourth on that list of people he's going to call back. So that's a little bit about me. And like I said, excited to learn during the conversation. Absolutely. And it's great to have you, Hunter. All right. So Andrew, wanted you to talk about lending. You are the man of the hour. You're seeing a lot of stuff that we're not seeing. Obviously, we're kind of getting secondhand reports, but talk to us about what's happening with lending from a lender standpoint. I know you guys are actually, you guys are a broker, right? So you work with different lenders. We do have our own balance sheet capital and we are one of the largest agency lenders for multifamily in the country. And so we have um, a lot of data. We're also one of the largest servicers. So um, all of the loans that we do as a uh, direct lender and as a correspondent, we service for the life of that loan. And so we have a, just a lot of great data at our disposal. Um, the, the two main things that we're seeing 
Uh, and interesting that you know we're talking about rising interest rates. By the way, the ten-year Treasury is down seventy basis points over the last three weeks. So we're actually in a falling rate environment on a on a long-term permanent debt side of the business. Although on the short-term part of the curve, which is fueled by SOFR, which is more impacted directly by the Fed funds rate and the the Fed increasing rates uh, month over month, uh, that continues to rise. And so what we're seeing is almost almost an inverted yield curve today uh, between the short and the long. But uh, that said, uh, deals are still getting done. Uh, our transaction volume uh, is still extremely strong, uh, which means people are out there transacting, although acquisition volume has fallen a little bit as some equity players have decided to uh, take a little bit of a step back. They want to see where the market shakes out. Uh, they don't want to be the one trying to catch a falling knife. We've seen buyers retrading sellers, and I know we don't like using that term. But that's just what it is. Uh, we've seen anywhere from one to 10 percent on acquisition listing prices. Um, and that's what the buyers are doing is they're citing that, listen, their lenders are reducing the amount of debt uh, that they're willing to provide. And so and it's based on raising interest rates, which stresses the, um, the underwriting for lenders. And all of a sudden the debt load that any property could carry 90 days ago isn't what it is today. But despite that, at least in multifamily, personally, I don't really believe that cap rates have much reason to increase. Um, according to Dr. Peter Lineman, we've had him on our Walker webcast multiple times. Uh, he, he does the Lineman report for all of you who um, subscribe to it. Uh, he says there's no actual correlation between interest rates and cap rates. Really, that correlation is between the supply of money in the financial system and cap rates. And so we've had uh, QE infinity now, right? The quantitative easing where the Fed is just buying bonds, right? Basically supporting and propping up our, our financial system for a long, long time. And because of that, the estimate says that there's about five, one, maybe two asset classes, multifamily and industrial, which have been the stars of the show for the last few years. Um, in my opinion, look, we're almost back to you know 2019 interest rate uh, environment with the 10 year floating around 3%, flirting with that little with that mark. Um, and, and transaction volume did great. Um, you know, business was booming before the pandemic. And so, um, it, is it an impact in the short term? Yes. In the long term, I think it's just a reality that we're going to have to get to, to understand that, listen, this is the new norm. Um, with regards to uh, equity returns, let's break it down a bit. So uh, when interest rates rise across the yield curve, income producing assets overall can support less debt. That's just a fact. And so less debt, of course, means more equity is required to fund new acquisitions. So that said, the total weighted average cost of capital should remain relatively unchanged. And what I mean by that is, despite your cost of debt going up, there's less debt, right? So that sort of evens out. That's about a net zero. Uh, but opportunities should skew further in favor of those with ample liquidity today. So those that are sitting on cash and who can afford to infuse more equity into new acquisitions. And ultimately, look, the expectations of those returns for the equity investors have to be tempered in conjunction. So, you know, that's, that's really good. I really appreciate that, Andrew. That's a great kind of boots on the ground or just, you know, what's happening in the markets, people settling for a little less or sellers kind of realize maybe their options are a little bit limited uh, in terms of what they were looking at previously. Um, I did want to just say, uh, I know we're having a little bit of choppiness on the uh, stream there for the people watching. So I do apologize for that. We're going to try to get that uh, resolved for next month. Um, and again, hopefully, we can kind of still, you can still understand us. Um, if we want to go over the poll real quick, we had, uh, you know, how concerned are you about rising interest rates and your real estate? 27% said no sweat. 
Uh, 66% said a little nervous and 5% said chicken little, the sky is falling. So um, anyway, I'll put, put another poll up here in a little bit. But uh, speaking of that, there is a difference between how institutional investors are dealing with it. Yeah, well, truth be told, I'm really interested in hearing what Andrew has to say, because I know he's talking with a lot of these groups. But as I didn't really introduce uh, our company, Von Finch Capital, we're an investment manager and sponsor of multifamily projects uh, and multifamily type investment type products. Um, so we're focused primarily on multifamily, although we are looking at and seeing some great opportunities coming down the pipeline in some other uh, areas. And our team has experience you know, across different asset classes. Um, so what we're noticing is that we primarily work with retail investors. We have, you know, hundreds of investors that have invested directly with us into different deals that we've done and are currently doing, as well as, uh, you know, we have a fund that we're going to be launching that's a preferred equity fund. That's more of a a safer type investment, lower risk profile, more of a moderate return. And what we're noticing is that in the deals that we're launching right now and in the last three to four months or so, even going all the way back to January, we're seeing a softening in the retail side of the market. When I say retail, what I mean by that is I mean, folks that are listening, maybe you guys haven't been through uh, recessions. And what we're noticing is that there is a softening in that part of the equity space. People are a little bit slower to show interest, they're a little slower to commit, it's taking a little bit more follow-up to actually have those deals close out. Of course, things are still closing out, we're still seeing the capital come through. Uh, what's really interesting, just from a more qualitative perspective, things went from sell out within a couple days to the spigot nearly turned off. And that's what happens when sentiment changes in the market, but what we're seeing with those who are more sophisticated, maybe they have analysts on their team, family offices, and probably some of the institutions like the uh, types of folks that Andrew and his company works with, these folks are used to, they're hungry, they're sitting there waiting for those opportunities. They understand how to structure deals in a very uh, advantageous way to them as the conversation that seems to be happening there. Yeah. So, so it's really, it's split um, and it's split in for two reasons. One is what type of fund they are and what they're, uh, what they must do um, and, and how patient their capital is. And so when you have uh, folks like Blackstone and Vornado and all these folks that are raising real estate specific funds, they have to go out and put that money to use, right? They, they actually don't get paid unless they're, they're buying uh, deals and they're getting acquisition fees and asset management fees and ongoing such and such. So, so they're actually incented to go out and transact. If you look on uh, the life company side of the business, uh, you know, principal advisors and Northwestern Mutual, I mean, they're on the equity side too, but they're looking at, they, they can invest in, in anything, right? Real estate is just one asset class that they look to own. They can buy corporate bonds. They can sit on cash. They can buy mutual funds and stock markets. So they're actually comparing uh, real estate to other asset costs and saying, what's my risk premium for taking it? And so some of those folks we're seeing are on the sidelines because uh, they're saying, look, what are those who don't want to try and catch the falling knife, right? They, they want to wait on the sidelines until prices ultimately stabilize and they can go out and maybe try and pick up some assets at a discount. Uh, and I think there are those who are already in the market. And I don't know whether or not they believe we're at the bottom of the correction or near the bottom of the correction, but they're already getting a discount. 
they're transacting and saying, look, the debt markets are moved and they're getting a discount. And that's a that's a big thing. I, I, again, I don't know how much prices are going to fall because everyone's going to be chasing multifamily for the next three to five years. Uh, I think a lot of people in, in camp number one are going to look back and, and look back at the second half of this year specifically and say, man, I wish I bought a couple more assets in 2022. You know, that's a really good point, Andrew, because it really comes down to choices, right? You have money sitting here. What are you going to do with your your money? Where are you going to put it? Um, I, I'm an investor in precious metals and gold went down about 2% or 1.5% today. So I bought some more gold. Like there's things that you can invest in, but holding cash, well, there's a benefit to it. There's a high holding cost for it. Um, things going forward as far as just the demand for housing, particularly in certain markets. Yeah. So, I mean... I'll, I'll try to keep this brief. You mentioned I did a keynote presentation about it, so I'm not going to do the keynote presentation right now, but I'll give you some high level stuff to think about. Um, Steven knows that I've got no shame in just going up and screen sharing and doing 45 minutes. So I'll keep it very brief. <laughs> well, we'll cut the um, mic. We'll be like the, the yeah, Emmys where they cut the mic. That's right? <laughs> typical of most of my presentations. But um, so so here's the thing. The bond market is the largest market in the world. All right? I think it's $110, $119 trillion globally. It's larger than the entire globally, global stock market as well. So it's, it is massive it is the foundation on which the entire financial system works. And so the reason this is important is that when the bond market moves, the rest of the markets move as well. So why are interest rates rising? I'll tie it into the bond market in a moment. We had, you know, a $1.3 trillion button was pushed in 2008 when the financial crisis was kind of frozen and stopped and QE for the first time in a meaningful way happened. And then about seven or eight years later, excuse me, 14 years later or so, 2020 during COVID, the Fed basically said, hey, $1.3 trillion, depending on who you listen to, inflation is somewhere around the range of 8% or so. CPI is at 8%, 44-year high, 40-year high, somewhere in that range. Now, if you're a bond trader, what you're seeing is that like a 10-year bond is a matter of fact producing negative returns, meaning that if you're thinking about buying a 10-year bond, you are almost certainly going to lose money over a 10-year term. And so bond investors are not going to accept that. Think about it, $119 trillion bond market. Bond traders that I know do not want to accept negative returns. And so what do they do? They start searching for yield. They start being more willing to incur more risk in exchange for higher returns to beat inflation. And so, sure, the stock market is an option, but so is venture capital. So is NFTs. So are Dogecoins. But what do we all think is most favorable on a risk-adjusted basis? United States real estate procurement. You guys, if you were not born in the United States, you have some sense of what else is out there. This game in the U.S. is unlike anything else in the world. That is why there is money internationally flooding to these markets. And so when I think of supply and demand imbalance, yes, you have a huge demand for affordable housing and a very limited supply. But the same is true of capital, a massive glut demand for investments and a very limited amount of those investments. This creates a situation where you can see what Andrew is talking about, the potential for increasing interest rates and compressing cap rates. 
And then you always see some weird stuff in the NFT market because people are trying to place capital. So, um, you know, we're very excited over the long term. And I do agree, you know, if you're not trying to buy quality assets right now, uh, you will regret it in the future. Thanks. That was kind of, that was great. It was a great summary of your talk in, in three minutes, but I appreciate that. Uh, real quick, we're going to Andrew go last. I feel like Andrew's, <laughs> that's right. Well, you want to go after. I'm going to have to I'll, put you guys on. This is the hot seat for you. Yeah, guys. right. <laughs> I'll go first and I'll set the stage and anyone can do a better job than me. If you go back and listen to a debate I did about a year ago with some very smart people on one of the largest stages in non-institutional real estate, the best ever real estate conference, I debated that interest rates would be far lower in 24 months or 12 months in or 18 months in, and they are not going to be to a large degree. Okay. So I won the debate, I will likely lose the reality, which actually matters. But the reason I made that case is because when I look at the excuse me trajectory of interest rates over the last 40 years, and I look at the, the majority, overwhelming majority of industrialized countries that have negative rates, I think the question of when rates are, quote, going to rise back historical norms is not the right question. I think the trend is your friend. And I think that there's still plenty of room to go in the downward range. But the way that things are going, writing everything as if interest rates are going to be higher. We've been underwriting everything for the last six, seven, maybe even eight months as if interest rates are going to go higher after there's been just a little bit of a conversation towards that direction. Um, but I'm going to predict that they're actually going to be lower than they are today, just for fun. Yeah. No, I, I want to say something before. And I feel like Andrew's like the godfather here. So I want to like make sure I say it before he says it. Um, I, I think we're, I think it's going to be about the same. I think we're going to have a period of rising rates up until about the midterms or if unless something breaks, they're raising rates so aggressively right now. I don't think it's going to be multifamily investing necessarily, but somewhere in the financial system, something's going to break. And I think they're going to reverse course and it could be about the same or even lower than they are right now. But uh, Andrew, the godfather, I don't know if you're a godfather with that beard. I don't know. Just Perfect segue. Perfect segue to my answer. Um, not only do, do we not have a crystal ball, the Fed doesn't have a crystal ball. In fact, if you go back and look, the Fed is perfect. But what we're seeing uh, already are articles from lobbyists and other um, um, analysts on Bloomberg and other media sites that are basically calling the Fed out for overreacting and having increased interest rates too quickly and too sharply already. Um, going back to Linneman, um, if you read his latest letter, uh, these articles might not actually be wrong. So chew on this for a minute. Um, GDP, which is basically a crude measure of our country's total demand, right? It's the whole country saying we, we want more goods and services. It's up 3% over the last two years. Um, and that's despite going through a pandemic, you know, millions of deaths, industry-wide shutdowns, travel bans, civil unrest, uh, the election cycle. Um, now we were up 3%. We in a normal GDP growth year, we would have been up maybe five to six percent. So we didn't actually hit what could have been uh, the potential GDP growth. Um, as supply and demand stabilizes, that tells me that a there is demand for growth and be active environment like we live in. That's going to not only are things priced in sometimes, but sometimes we overreact. And so because of that, it wouldn't surprise me if the Fed ultimately and sometime in 2023 ends up lowering rates back down. I think through the end of this year, we see some hikes. I think they're going to stick to their word that what the big caution that I have from the Fed and that we all need to be um, concerned with is whether they continue to raise rates in an environment that doesn't call for it. 
uh, because that is a very scary thing and that could cause deflation later on. But it, it will, that, that's a whole other issue. Um, it, so we really need to put our trust in the Fed and hope that they act accordingly. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if through the end of this year, rates continue. I think we do hit, um, you know, two and a half maybe on the short term SOFR curve, something like that. And then it wouldn't surprise me if it, if it plateaus and then comes back down uh, sometime in 2023. That's great. You're right. Nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows what, you know, seeing four and a half percent for bridge debt that you can, you know, have a cap on. And of course, there's some variability of that to, to float up a little bit. But still, you're borrowing at a much lower rate than what inflation is, which I think is a real advantage. And it's, it's the idea of inflation induced debt destruction, right? You're actually destroying the debt that you have with inflation and you're paying it off with future dollars. Can, um, I, can I make a point about this real please, quick? Please, and yeah. I know you're familiar with this content because this yeah. is a little bit of what I talked about. Not yeah. necessarily that you learned it from me or anything like that. This is something that we all just need to be talking about. Not only um, does the debt so people think about uh, inflation in the sense of if you have $100,000 and inflation is kicking at 8% per year, the value of your $100,000 is going to be deteriorated by 8% per year. But it's also the case of borrowed money, meaning if you borrow $100,000, the amount of purchasing power that you owe back to the bank is being deteriorated by inflation. And not only this especially in an environment where you can borrow money less expensive, it's are highly bullish for more risky assets. Now, you and I like to talk about how real estate's not risky, and that's true. But to bond investors, real estate is very risky, but they will be willing to incur more risk to, to get more quality returns in this inflationary environment. That's a great, great point. That's something that I think um, I know you talk about that a bit. Jason Hartman, my friend, talks about that as well. And I just think it's it's an incredible advantage. That's how people, you know, get incredibly wealthy is in inflationary environments. They get cheap debt and they can just, you know, that's how things investor equity doubles in deals in a short amount of time. We're seeing it in our deals. We're seeing it. I'm sure you guys are seeing it as well. Um, I did put a poll out here. Just want to go over this real quick. We are going to get to questions here in a minute. I have one more question for our panel and then we're going to jump to questions. Um, are you buying more real estate right now? I'm going to end this poll so everybody can see it. Um, the heck yes, I'm buying everything I can get my hands on 21%. If I can find a good deal, 64% and waiting to see what happens, 14%. So a lot of people are kind of like, yeah, if I see a good deal, I'll do it. Fits of getting into the business when I did, you know, it's one of the most favorable times to invest in commercial real estate. Okay. 2011, I started attending meetings and looking at stuff and the thought leaders at the space were like, this is the back to truck up moment. Look at these cap rates, 10% cap rates in mobile home parks, 9% cap rates in retail centers. Like this is the moment. Don't you get it? And I was like, I don't have any confidence. I don't have a network. I, I don't, sure. I like would love to back the truck up, but what truck? I don't got a truck, you know? And so here's what's interesting about that. I was dedicated to networking, growing my education, growing my confidence, my ability to invest and also raise capital. And the deals I saw in 2014 were better than the deals I saw in 2011 because my confidence, my knowledge, my network grew faster than the most pronounced return of real estate prices in the history of the United States. So all of those answers are perfectly reasonable for the right person where they are in their career. If you, you can take a small amount, put it in something speculative, but uh, you know where you put something. I mean, I, it's just amazing to me. And I share this story. I used to be an investment advisor for several years and I talked with hundreds of investors and Wall Street has done a great job convincing people that stocks and bonds are traditional. 
when you know it's it's really nice. it's really the opposite, but it's crazy. Like if I was like gonna tell you like, hey, there's a pretty good chance what you invest in it could go down by like fifty percent over the next one or two years, but you should just buy and hold, and you know over the long term you'll be okay. Like you're crazy, but that's kind of what ever, what we're doing to people. But anyway, so let I want to ask you guys one more question, and we'll start this one with Andrew, work our way around, um, and then we're gonna take some questions. Um, so you know the proof is really in the pudding. What is it you are personally investing in now? Whatever you can share, you feel comfortable sharing. You don't have to talk about net worth or that stuff, but just kind of here's some things that you're considering on a personal level, not from your business, but for you personally, how you're approaching this. So let's start with Andrew and then we'll kind of work our way around. Yeah. Uh, owning the owning as a GP and not as a uh, an LP and not taking on any other investors. Um, so we're, what we're trying to do is right now is accumulate as much dry powder as possible so that when the time comes, when you find the right property, um, we're ready to jump. Um, again, it, looking back, I think in three to five years, you know, I don't know. I, I, maybe we should just settle for a smaller property and buy right now because um, I don't know if it's going to get any better, um, especially in multifamily, which is what we're interested in. Uh, we're also looking at alternative investments, um, self-storage, uh, some other you know, recessionary type uh, asset classes that perform well when the rest of the market is going counter cyclical. And so we're, we're toying with a couple of ideas and a couple of different um, avenues, but we like, you know, local operators and being a local operator ourselves and being able to have our hands on um, a piece of property that we're not. Things I've been investing with over the last 24 months, uh, have a small allocation in crypto, not a huge crypto bug, but we have a small NFT fund that's a very specific, uh, has a very specific platform that we've identified. And we have a small team that's working on that, trading in that space. And that's been really, really interesting. Definitely taken a hit as the whole markets have gone down, but we like it even more right now because of that. The other big thing is, you know, we're buying a lot of multifamily. Majority of my personal net worth is in the multifamily deals that I'm either investment manager on or uh, co-sponsor in. Um, where a big chunk, uh, similar to Andrew, we had a couple of exits recently. And so we're sitting on a significant amount of cash and majority of that is going to go into a new preferred equity fund, which we're going to be launching. And the reason we're launching that fund is so that we can get better terms by going out and putting 20 or $30 million to work, but a, a big chunk, probably 60 to 70% of it, um, is really focused on low risk, moderate returns not looking for home runs. We're looking for good, solid base hits that might turn into a double, might turn into a triple. That's really the mindset right now uh, until we see some more stability in the market. But we actually think that this singles strategy will actually be able to get us a couple home runs because when you have capital in the bank and somebody comes to you with a phenomenal deal in a class A market with a class A property, but they need that cash to close, we can actually negotiate much better terms for the fund and therefore for ourselves and therefore for our investors. So that's kind of our big focus right now. Our shift is really more towards preservation with, you know, still keeping solid returns coming in. Thanks, Stephen. Hunter, what about you? What are you doing? Yeah, first of all, I've, I've learned quite a bit today so far. So just excited to be here as always. Um, you know, We've done Bitcoin mining. We've done ATM machines. I've done cell storage office, industrial. I've done it all because we're not an operator, right? 
But it just might be the case that on a risk-adjusted basis, when you think about the number of participants in the space and how liquid the assets are because the number of participants, multifamily might just be the, the least disruptable, least likely to get an email to say, this is no longer valid. And if you can remove that risk and still produce a, a IRR in the teens, just might be one of those asymmetric returns. So uh, my personal... Uh, portfolio on a percentage basis is going to significantly increase when it comes to multifamily, though I have done things in all a bunch of other asset classes. Awesome. Thanks, Hunter. That's uh, great to hear what each of you are doing. Uh, oh, it looks like, Andrew, you're on mute there. We're going to do some questions here in a minute, but Andrew, do you have something to add there? Maybe not. Uh, no, no, no. Oh, no. Okay. You're, you're... Replying to uh, some of the questions in the, the Q&A box here. Oh, awesome. Okay. I know we may not be able to get to all the questions, but we'll do the best we can. And thank you guys for uh, keeping your, uh, you know, staying tuned as far as the freezings. Hopefully it's getting a little better. We're not seeing it on the speaker side, but this did, this has happened. I think it happened last month. So we're going to really get on Webinar Jam and try to figure out what's hey, going hey, on. Hey, Bronson, can I, can yeah. I actually can I make one point just to piggyback yeah. off of uh, Hunter's last point? Um, you know, risk, risk adjusted premium is a really interesting idea uh, from the investor's side of the, the coin. And right now what we're seeing is tons of capital piling into multifamily, piling into industrial because they are safe haven assets. Um, right now though, there are opportunities in other asset classes. Uh, retail, we're seeing some fairly wide cap rates that have great positive leverage. I mean, truly an arbitrage on some great credit anchored um, just because I think it's gonna get really even more crowded and it may be worth exploring and being a little bit contrarian. I I think that's really important. I want to just underline something that both of you guys said and something that I was alluding to in my conversation. This idea of risk-adjusted returns is a word that everybody uses, but I don't think a lot of retail investors really think about understanding that. I hear a lot of people who, when asked the question, would you be willing to lose 100% of your investment in order to make the return that you're being projected? And they say, absolutely not. And then you'd say, well, what's your risk profile? I'm like, I'm happy taking high risk. So risk adjusted means in comparison with the amount of risk you're taking is the return that you're going to get will be higher or lower. And so what we're really talking about here is finding deals where we can get a lower risk, but get a much higher return. Let's say worst case scenario, you know, you have bridge debt, it ends in a couple of years or a few years, and all of a sudden rates are significantly higher. Right. I know some people are concerned that all of a sudden rates are way higher and you can't, you know, the valuations are, are way lower. Or, you know, let's just say things don't go according to plan. Are the options simply just to sell at that point? Or do you think that uh, based on actually maybe directs the hunter at first, do you think that the demand is just so high? There's just almost no way the valuations, especially with inflation, will be higher in the, you know, a few years from now. So I think about the scenario and I would like other panelists thoughts on this as well, but I can foresee a situation where interest rates are high, occupancy is high, inflation is high, collections are high, rent rental growth is high. I cannot see a situation where interest rates are high, occupancy is low, inflation is low, the economy is slow. Um, they are good at what they do. They have a billion dollars of real estate within a 40 mile radius. They kick butt in that 40 mile radius. Man, if they are going to struggle, <laughs> everyone is going to struggle. Every 
damn operator in that market is going to be losing their shirt. If this group is losing their shirt, it will mean that the Fed pushed a button that was so severe that like, I can't even foresee it. I just don't see that happening given what I just outlined regarding the time during which rates rise significantly. Just my thoughts though. Oh, that's great. Thank you. That was really good. Um, I know, Andrew, you've been kind of answering questions in the chat here. So thanks for, for doing that. Any, anyone you think would be helpful to uh, address or just kind of touch base for those that are watching on the replay here? Well, one, I just want to comment on that I noticed from Darren was talking about build to rent. You know, we're, we're working on underwriting some deals in the build to rent space with some operators that we know, like, and trust. I know Andrew can talk about what the numbers actually mean behind it, but they're you know, phenomenal asset class. If you find the right operator who can actually execute and you're in with the right deal structure, because I've seen plenty of build to rent deals that don't have a great deal structure and you're getting not the best risk adjusted return, you're getting a good return. But if you actually knew what was being created for how much risk was there, you might want to see a little bit better deal structure. It's what are you seeing, Andrew? Yeah, we're, we're probably the largest financier of build for rent in the nation right now. Um, so we're really on the cutting edge and working with a lot of the um, large national and regional home builders who are pivoting into BFR. Um, so the, my only comment is that there was a, a pre-sale market that uh, folks were coming in and tying up and buying communities before even breaking ground. That has now dried up with interest rates rising for institutions looking for long-term holds because they know they can just sit on this stuff. It gives them some optionality in the future if they want to parcel it off and sell them if they're individually condo mapped. Um, so it is a, it's been white hot now for call it 12, 15 months. Um, there's been a slight cooling in the market because again, that pre-sale market, which was kind of niche has dried up, but is still uh, very, very attractive. But again, it's, it's mostly larger communities, bigger check sizes, um, and, and folks that are looking for ways to get multifamily returns or, or similar, uh, but not competing against on a typical class A multifamily. I think there's an interesting idea too. You've been talking about with build to rent of just finding ways to protect yourself. You know, Warren Buffett talks about this idea of a margin of safety, right? And I think when we do value add, you know, deals in general, um, you have a margin of safety there, right? Because you know, like in Jacksonville, we're, we're buying places that rent there, which is great. And um, we've got time for maybe one more question. Um, hey, Bronson, can I, can I yeah. just say one thing on that? Please, so yeah. it, it, margin of safety, there's a, a couple of different ways. Right now in a rising rate environment, your best margin of safety is positive leverage. Meaning that if your debt is below your cap rate, you have an arbitrage. Hmm. You've done well there. So if you're banking on, if you're buying at a three cap with 5% money, and you're banking that you need to get that to a five and a half cap on your exit, that's a really risky proposal because you're negative leverage day one. Uh, but if you can get into a deal that has a value add component um, at 5% and you can get it at a five and a half cap, you're in a pretty good place, right? You still have a little bit of margin of error for that rate to run on you, but you still are working on the value add business plan that's going to create value through your cap rate. Um, so just keep that in mind. Positive and negative leverage is the relation of your debt versus the cap rate that you're either going in at or exiting at. It's going to be about you know, what's what's coming next, inflation or deflation or both. Or what does that look like? Uh, we do have an event, though, on Monday, a special event. I've never really told my story in this way where I'm actually uh, Ellis Hammond and I are going to basically talk about how or I'm going to talk and then share with Ellis as well about how 
Uh, I raised $12 million over 12 months for real estate. So kind of how that goes, um, July 11th at 4 p.m. I put the info in the chat on that. So um, if you're interested, love to have you be a part of that. And then also I joined this group called Kingdom REI, which is kind of a faith-based group where they uh, get together and talk about real estate and do it with uh, sound you know, uh, ethics as well as a faith uh, focus. So it's really pretty cool. So I'll share that with you if you are interested. Um, I want to say to each of our panelists, um, anybody, listen, I know we have more questions here, so I, I just want to definitely be sensitive to people's time. Uh, but I just want to say to each of you, uh, you know, as panelists, thank you so much for coming and being here a part of this event. Um, I have great respect for each of you. And uh, even, you know, Stephen coming in from vacation here. So thanks for getting us from the, uh, looks like you're in the bar. They're already going to have a drink. But, you know, I want you, I'm sure it's, well, it's five o'clock here on the West Coast too. So it's later there. But uh, really excited for uh, you know, what's kind of happening right now, the opportunity in the markets. And again, to, to each person who's watching this live or maybe watching it on a replay, uh, this is a time to wrap up on this and, uh, thank you, Bronson, for putting this together is phenomenal. Andrew, super awesome hearing from you. Uh, would love to talk further and Hunter, you're amazing. But for everyone who's listening here, uh, the biggest issue that I see people face is that they're not hundred percent clear on what they want and why they want it. They're not hundred percent clear on why they're investing, what that specific investment looks like and how that's to help them get to their goals. So when they see a new opportunity come in front of them, they say, well, I don't know, does it feel right? Does it not feel right? And what ends up happening is that fear in times of uncertainty creeps in and then great opportunities slide out from right in front of you. So the biggest recommendation I have is to just sit down and ask yourself, what am I really looking for in these investments? What is my true risk profile? What's important to me? But when everyone thinks everything's terrible and it goes to just okay, that's the time when you can make massive amounts of money. And that might be a time that could be coming very soon. It might be a time that's right now. There might be an opportunity coming into your inbox in a week, a month, a few months, who knows when that's going to happen. So if you can sit down and get clear on what you want, why you want it, get clear on what that investment purpose is. So when that opportunity comes in front of you, when we know that things have gone from terrible to just okay, that you can jump on it, that you can make that investment and you can really set yourself up and your family for what you're actually looking for out of all the stuff we do. Awesome. Okay. Real quick, 30 seconds. Andrew Wesling. Uh, if you're investing in real estate, you're invested in the getting back to stabilization. Look for long-term wealth building with safe and, uh, and, and responsible leverage. And you will continue and, and look for good cash flow. Appreciation is just the cherry on top. Awesome. Thanks, Hunter. You got 30 seconds. You want to share something? I don't really got anything to share. I think everybody kicked butt. I particularly like Stephen's comments there. Um, go all in on capacity knowledge, network, confidence. You can just never build up too much capacity to take advantage of these things. And worst case scenario, you don't get to use it. You know what I mean? And, and you will eventually get to use all of it. So uh, get after it. Is it cool if I share just, I wrote a book about the topic of raising money. Can I drop yeah, it? Yeah, I think I've got it on the shelf behind me. Yeah, great. Okay, <laughs> cool. So um, if you're interested in raising capital, like right now, you've mentioned, uh, Stephen said it's 30 to 40% less 
available money out there right now. So it's a really good time to focus on capacity. And I think Wall Street has convinced us that safe traditional investments are stocks and bonds when they are incredibly risky. So uh, thanks again for taking the time, everyone. And we'll look forward to seeing everybody on Monday if you're able to make it for the How I Raised or How You Can Raise $12 million in 12 months. You've been listening to the Mailbox Money Podcast. For more free resources, articles, and videos, go to bronsonequity.com. There you can download your copy of the special report, The Single Best Investment Strategy During and After a Pandemic. None of the information shared here is an offer to buy a specific investment, and this is for educational purposes only. Consult your financial, legal, and tax professionals and use your own common sense before making any investment decisions. Thanks for joining us and be sure to tune next time for more Mailbox Money.